This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. This week's show is a little bittersweet for me, because as of next week, I won't be the host of Fordham Conversations anymore. I'll be leaving you in the capable hands of producers Robin Shannon and Mary Wilson. Now, I'm not leaving the station or anything, but this will be my last Fordham Conversations, so I thought I'd use it revisiting one of the ones I had the most fun making. Back in May of last year, I spoke to Fordham University poet-in-residence Janet Kaplan about her work, and she read me several of her poems. I worked a little producing magic on those poems, and we'll hear them today along with my conversation with poet Janet Kaplan. Let's start out with this poem from Kaplan's first book, The Ground Note, published in 1998. It's called simply Poem, and it takes place at a performance of Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture in Central Park. From New York's outer boroughs towards center, Central Park and the symbolistic climax to the 1812 overture, and over Manhattan's half moon, the accompanying explosions, cyclamen, sunflower, chrysanthemum flaring into blossom. Such hue and cry for a midsummer's night. What magician could concoct a sleep, let alone a dream of love, among the humid patchwork of family picnic blankets, chicken sandwiches, loose corked wine, fit, perhaps, to wash down bottoms good dry oats? Here is no place for miracles or finery of taste. At one blanket, the scent of banana and pampers. At another, a nastier mix, suburban fresh, of Aramis and Eau de Love. And there, so close to the first violins that they can see the limbered, sweated necks, two whose debt to one another resembles nothing less than limited war. Their coupling, way beyond flammable, beyond spark. A kinetic sort of rage, but deep in the bone, where it acts to numb the limbs and the heart. A settlement of sorts, which might explain so strong a lust for Tchaikovsky's overdose of peaks. And with them, their beaded child, duly polyestered in halter blouse and cut-off dungarees. Impossibly, her hair is neatened, even in this humid heat, to a melanite sheen. I'm sitting somewhere else, she, the 17-year-old, says to those two sullen melded knots of mom and dad. No response, so into the crowd with her. A weak, stomach-clenching girl whose worst fear is her future, that miasma of hazards. And if future is synonymic of now, she is not a customer. Inside, the girl's soul is not available for her mind's use. No amour propre flows to limbs or face to inform her with a self-energizing life. But now she frees herself from the spot where the two familiars sit hulked as mounds of ash. She circumnavigates the sea strand of musical devotees, towing close enough to touch the tide, the wave of notes busting from the band shell. Finding one abandoned, tattered sheet to claim as hers, she cautiously lets herself lie down, face up, alone, a primal eye among the raz. At every reach, an instance and example of consumerhood, 
the dreck and spillage of the sacred and what makes it sacred, human heart. There's still time for her to emerge in the fluxion of the days and authority of her soul, isn't there? But isn't there the wish for fuel and spark, the fury to live, a fundamental idea and wake-up call in each of every one who showed up, potato salad or cello in hand, to listen for that note? Wouldn't that be a planet, its reflected light furled around itself in such a timid stance amid the fireworks? It's a coming-of-age poem. We welcome Janet Kaplan into the studio this week to read some of her poems and to talk about her work and about poetry in general. I started out by asking her what her work was about. When I first started writing, my poems really were about subject matter. I mean, I, I think I started writing as a way to figure out the difference between the truth and the lies I could tell myself so easily. Um, about my own feelings, about my family, myself, and the world. So the poems in my first book are about family and the place I lived, um, which actually was the Bronx. Up until not that very long ago, I lived in the Bronx. I was born here and raised here. How influenced by growing up in the Bronx have you been in your writing? I have no clue who I'd be otherwise. I have no clue. It's it's as firm inside me as my own blood. I can't imagine a better place to grow up for a poet. And that, I would say today, is still the case. It's impossible to stay within boundaries of clan or class in the Bronx. It's impossible. And so, therefore, poetry becomes possible because, by its nature, poetry questions boundaries. Where did you grow up in the Bronx? Well, I was born, uh, well, when my folks uh, were married and had me, we lived around the corner from Yankee Stadium. In fact, I went recently to look at the house I lived in. You have to sort of cross the street to see that it's still there. It's sort of like a, the top of an arc sunk in some storefronts. Um, and then we moved um, to Sherman Avenue at 167th. And then I lived on Mashalu Parkway in the Bronx. This is a kind of a love poem to the borough of my birth. And it's called Pelham Bay. Middle world, ex-utopian haunt of ooze and schist, no place of cattails and clay fields and marshland clam gatherers who call this haven Aquigenum. Or so I read, homesick as any primitivist for my local lost paradise, this place that is always some place now, midsummer, for a purple-suited water skier's race across the bay, motor blamming through the foam. On the beach, not a stone's throw from home. It's called South Bronx now, the city's backside. The radio is the thing, 
discord of a thousand jingles, and a thousand bodies baking half-naked on the sand, children greased in coconut oil and flowered with sand. You ain't it, you ain't it, a teen screams to his younger resemblance. (laughs) Further down the shore, one brave little girl lifts by its tail what's left of a horseshoe crab, flips it over, exposing the still innards. Is it something godlike? like forgiveness, or the mirroring work a parent does eye to eye with her infant that makes the filthy water break its reverie and heave back on shore our offerings, chicken bone, beer bottle, tampon, rind, so that walking the packed beach is like catching half a nap's worth of dreams, dreams inhabited by oracles and louts, crisp breaths of salt, and the moodiness of an unbathed latchkey child. But to climb, late afternoon, past the beach, beyond the snail-encrusted jetties, up the cliffs, near where the once forest deciduously begins, is to see the original cause, urgent hunger and its satisfaction. Here's a woman, coarse black hair tied back with twine, gathering past autumn's displaced leaves in a smoky mound, poor fire crackling upward like the mumblings of prayers. She calls to her son. He pretends not to hear, tossing stones, targeting the shoals where the reef bell rings its plangency. Their father is fishing, or waiting for fish, two rods buried deep in the spongy sand and anchored by rock. He will not leave until he gets what they came for, and so he settles down, old legs dangling over the cliff. He works at flattening his oily hair with a half-toothed comb. In an hour, the other son emerges from a last swim, wringing out the edges of his camouflage pants. He'll sit beside the father now, still unfed, the sky's red yoke dripping, gone. They listen to the tide's ideas, prototypical voice and steady heart. Down where the fishing lines go slack and disappear. That poem also from Janet Kaplan's first book, The Ground Note, that's out from Alice James Books. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking with Bronx native and Fordham University poet-in-residence Janet Kaplan today about her poetry, and she's reading some of her poems for us. Let's get back to that conversation. So the second book, the poems are about family, but extending that family to um, this country and the ways in which populations from other places come here and begin to understand who they were by being in a place where they were not born. My family is from Eastern Europe, and I needed especially to explore a particularly cantankerous character, my mother's father, 
very, very angry man. I think he loved his family dearly, but I'm not so sure how he felt about himself or anyone else he found himself living with or next to in this new world. He had escaped Lithuania. This, of course, was called the Golden Land. In my second book, The Glazer's Country, which, I might add, was published by Fordham University Press, and it had won the Poets Out Loud Prize, I'm going to read a poem called Promised Land. A hostile climate means a need for windows. It's 5 a.m. You fill cutter chambers, kerosene for a smooth run along the glass, and snap. Is the world on fire? Kinney, is the world on fire? I don't think so. I don't think so. You fill cutter chambers, kerosene for a smooth run along the glass, and those outside are exterior, external. 1921, Greenwood, Oklahoma. No, it never happened. It was struck from the records, from the pattern, the mob heading toward the tracks. In the Reusnis Finster, in the Reusnis Finster, is spät by night. Men held kein Schuh, and I will build for you a house. I will frame for you a window. 1921, a boy in steerage flees Lithuania. The Jews were not blamed for the Black Plagues. Their good treatment may have been because the Lithuanians were still pagans. Fleeing Lithuania toward the Golden Land, sun redundant above southern heat, flames navigating floorboards and crates marked ample cherries and wagons pulling toward Negro Wall Street. A young boy fleeing the pattern, sailing toward the golden land. The flames, the white mob heading toward the tracks. For more than a mile, a street crowded with hotels, bars, jazz joints, barbershops, pool rooms, and the premier addresses occupied by doctors and dentists and lawyers, known as the promised land. You smear hydrofluoric acid on a rag, make windows of mirrors, these are hostile times, old men bosses, glass factory fathers. Perhaps it is not your body hitting her, being reduced, left to rot beneath the blistering, to sink in the Arkansas, 123 bodies. No, there were more. Better off than the prostyidin, the unprofitable ones, your clan was better off. Not until 1784 were they allowed in any business or vocation they wished. Few shopkeepers had panes thicker than quarter inch in that town. Possibly your mother died before the soldiers cleared it. Your last words for father, to hell with you. You who make the windows have no time to look out. Leaving Lithuania, you were the oldest son. God stayed. And my poor sister, who was two years younger than I am, said, Kinney, is the world on fire? And I said, I don't think so. Hallelujahs ring through the burning. 
God stayed behind, became the religion continuing elsewhere, there is no time inside you to look out, fleeing what was. There was a great shadow, the woman wrote in her memoir, a shadow in the sky. There were plain strafings, she wrote, machine gun fire over Greenwood, USA, that veritable capital of black economic independence. And God stayed behind, becoming the religion continuing elsewhere, you preferring this inward silencing of God, the story, your freedom, bitterly. Some 300 bodies in the Arkansas, none back in Lithuania, will you see or speak of again, the mob torching houses, as if all contact involves shattering, and the story goes silent. Nineteen hundred and twenty-one. This is the year you come sailing. Not that you knew or could care to know how a soul hardens to glass, shatters in the golden land beneath the blistering, blistering gods. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm Nora Flaherty. This morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape with George Bodarki. On Fordham Conversations this morning, we're talking with Fordham poet-in-residence Janet Kaplan, and we're hearing some of her poems. Kaplan says that some of her earlier work, the work we've heard, had been more narrative. But the work she's been doing more recently is more about language and takes a less traditional poem form. I asked her about that. So the book you're working on now, what, what sorts of poems would that be? Um, well, let me sort of skip by saying that there's a there's a book that is forthcoming. And those poems um, began to explore um, subject matter regarding language itself. And, and, and those poems are what I call, well, what we call prose poems. And there's also a, a form I invented called a prose sonnet. And um, it would be difficult for me to say what they're about. I mean, they take as their cue work by a sculptor, the sculptor Joseph Cornell. And what Joseph Cornell did um, in his uh, collage work, he took seemingly disparate objects. He'd have a map of the solar system and a stuffed songbird and an empty chutney bottle. And he would put them on display in a wooden box he made himself. And the Objects are startling together, um, and you have to redefine the world as a place where all of these objects exist and not one has more importance than the other. I wanted to do something like that in language, and so the prose poems are my attempt to explore the relationship of disparate, seemingly disparate objects. The prose poem form goes way back um, to the French surrealists. It's not a new form. But it's a subversive form, and the poets who used it 100 years ago or so meant it as a subversive form. The Examined Life I've known great happiness. Pound, abbreviated LB, the word salary drawn from salt. I've unearthed a wealth of examples like these, shy examples that do not want to be discussed. Some people are happy lying low, they're happy as fountains of Cambrian-era RNA. 
Others shake their fists. Their eyes well with tears. Shall I crawl beneath my mother's feet because cabbages no longer grow on Broadway? It's Sri Lanka now, but the tea is still called Ceylon. Some elements come together to form compounds. Then you can't get back to the elements to save your life, not without the proper, very expensive tools. Just on the sort of most basic, sort mm -hmm. of I don't know anything about poetry kind mm -hmm. of level, what distinguishes a prose poem from just a piece of prose? What a wonderful question. Um, a piece of prose will tell you a story. Um, it will go sentence by sentence in a reasonably logical order. It may or may not be packed with images. Um, there'll be perhaps a who, what, when, where, and a why. There'll be an introductory statement. There'll be a climax scene. There'll be a denouement. There'll be a conclusion. Perhaps there'll be a conflict. Um, a prose poem, on the other hand, is a poem in that it's, it, its primary function is language. It is there to serve language and explore the beauty and the strangeness of the mind and the world. Surrealism, after all, is the um, taking of objects we might recognize, but putting them in contexts we wouldn't necessarily recognize, except perhaps in a dream. So you look at a prose poem and it looks like a paragraph. It should act like a paragraph, but it does not. It does not. And that's the joy and the pleasure and the subversive nature of the prose poem. Now, a prose sonnet. This is a form I invented. I was writing prose poems, these blocks of text, and I was teaching formal poetry. And I came across a sonnet by Edna St. Vincent Millay. It's sonnet number 10 from her collection, Mine the Harvest, and it begins, I will put chaos into 14 lines and keep him there, and let him thence escape if he be lucky. And I thought, well, gee, Edna wrote that poem some time ago, a number of decades ago, and I think by now perhaps chaos has gotten a little bit bigger than the 14-line form would allow to keep and contain him. And I thought, what if he's in a sonnet of 14 pieces? And so I decided to put chaos into a 14-piece prose poem. This is called Meals. These prose sonnets are linked indirectly. Each piece is, um, oh, maybe this goes from one short sentence to several sentences within each section. There are 14 sections. This one has an epigraph from the movie Wings of Desire. And Damiel, the angel Damiel, says, he's come back for a visit, and he says, to be excited not only by the mind, but at last by a meal. Meals, one. Wide brushstrokes are meals, black and green and orange. They descend and encroach upon the blue limited plate. Two. A poached egg that illuminates inward. And here on earth a light that doesn't reach the foreground and is therefore not the cause of the colors one sees in these peaches. 
What is the cause? The painter's mind, her own dual nature. And then there's the skull. Three, my father without his glasses? A girl reading sheet music? Some meals are like stills from a home movie, half moving, half still. Some are as lurid as newsreels. So many different kinds of meals. Four, two bowls of spaghetti. One is sharp but uneaten. The other is vanishing quickly, and so the mind paints over it, actively and malignantly abstracts it. Five, the restaurant makes me ache for the wilderness because it is too exacting. Isn't that sandwich too particular? That cutlet too resolute? Six, yolks have cholesterol. Knowledge is elsewhere. What I'm telling you to do is make money, marry young, eat healthy meals. What I'm telling you to do has no depth. I don't believe in these things. Where was I during the party? The back room full of violins splitting at their seams. Where were you when you should have been at work? The laundromat, watching Elsie's potted plants shake on the spinning machines. Seven, how much is intentional and how much is chaos? Eggs equal gravity. Flour equals dominant subject matter. Mustard equals the disturbance, getting closer to or further from the disturbance. Wine vinegar means that the rectangle, though disappearing, is still very strong. Eight, when I paint, I don't exist, and then I eat. Nine, the lines use red, a streak of ketchup, or the sun. I think ordinary people already understand this. A child asks, how'd she make that scribble? Ten, wind pushes the fork, rain sweeps away the knife. As in the development of any meal, we're going to have to experiment. This is not the same as starvation. The children eating locusts in locust season, the parents knowing how much time between the bloating of the feet and death. 11. Otherwise, one can like rain, not too little, not too much. One can admire the particular green of new corn. One can send seed packets and water tanks. And one can ask all one wants, would I share my last kernel of corn with my neighbor? 12. One can like form, or one can like chaos. A man was chosen to race against his own meal. Go, man, go! 13. It is terrible to enter the mind of the hungry man, and so he recedes, and the meal gains the foreground, convenient and appealing, solid for something so small. 14. The placement of the condiment is often a paradox. What would you like people to know about poetry that we may not know, just the sort of average person? I think all of us, all of us, have a need for self-expression. It's part of the human experience. I think 
we all too often close ourselves to that need. Poetry will never pay the rent. Poetry will never get one a fancy lifestyle. That's the freedom of it. It is perhaps one of the few places left where one can explore. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? For folks interested in writing poetry and reading poetry at um, open mics and performance spaces, it's a wonderful thing to have a community. But I'm a big advocate of the relationship between the reader and the book. Buy books of poetry and read them. Sneak them into your room. Hide them under your pillow. Let them influence your dreams. Janet Kaplan, thank you so much. Thank you, Nora. It's a pleasure to be here. Janet Kaplan is the author of several books of poetry and poet-in-residence at Fordham. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at wfuv.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure creating the show for you. Have a wonderful weekend, and bye. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.